Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showman. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. This is going to be a holy pep talk this morning. I can't get fired up hooping and hollering like I normally do, but we're going to get excited this morning. Sermon title is Endurance, Endurance, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. But first, as always, we want to go to the Lord in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you're doing in our life, in our midst, the people that you're taking care of every single week, week in and week out. We come in through these doors as testimonies of your grace. Your presence has gone with us and your presence has brought us back, brought us back together. God, you've been faithful to sustain and give us strength. God, we thank you for the miracles that were on display this week. So many things that we can just thank you for. God, thank you for provision. Lord, we're just, we love you. We thank you. Help us in this time. God, I pray you would sustain my voice. Thank you that you've sustained my health, that I'm feeling well. I just pray you'd help me get, get through this. My voice would be, the, be strengthened to be able to get through this text this morning. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton, along with 28 men, sought out to go south and cross the entire expanse of Antarctica. It was the days of great exploration. If you've read the book Endurance, it's phenomenal. It was the first book that I read this year. And it happened to be in the very week that I'm studying about enduring as a Christian. And so it was fitting that the sermon title this morning would be Endurance. So Shackleton, with his 28 men, sailed south and ended up getting frozen in the ice before the expedition really even began. And so for five months, they sat frozen in the ice on the ship, waiting for the ship to be freed up. Sub-zero, frigid temperatures, just sitting there in the ice, week in, week out, month in, month out. Taking care of the dogs, there were 70 dogs that were with them that were on the trip. They were outside. Thank you very much, Scott. Now, the problem is, if I drink too much water now, I'll have to do a timeout and go to the bathroom here in just a little bit. Yeah, turn off my mic when I go to the bathroom. That's right. Be quite embarrassing. Another YouTube video would end up happening about the guy that had to go to the bathroom when he was preaching. It's happened before. So these, these men were on the ice, stranded, and what ended up happening, ice flows are so big, so heavy, that this ship that was made to go through the ice began to be crushed when the ice flow broke. And that ship took that pressure and took that pressure and took that pressure until it couldn't take the pressure anymore. The men had to abandon ship. And over a series of a month or so of it getting crushed on the ice, it got so crushed that it ended up sinking to the bottom, what ended up happening is they jumped on an ice flow like Buddy the Elf did at the beginning when he was leaving the North Pole, and it ended up getting smaller and smaller and smaller until he barely stepped off of it. Well, that's exactly what happened with these guys. They ended up being for months on this ice flow where they camped out on the ice, and they ended up traveling on the ice wherever the current brought them until they couldn't be there anymore. The ice began to break. 
And it was at this moment that one of the very few complaints happened from any of the men. As the ice broke, while they were sleeping, one of the men fell down in through the ice with a sleeping bag, fell into the ice and into the water. They were able to rescue him and pull him out. But the rest of the night, he was ordered to walk around. Shackleton ordered him. But they couldn't make a fire. The ice was too, too small. He had to walk the rest of the night to dry off. And so he had to literally just walk, walk, walk all night long. And his only complaint was he lost his tobacco in the water. He didn't care that he was sopping wet in sub-zero temperatures, walking around, that he wouldn't freeze to death. Somebody said amen out there. Tobacco is pretty important for some. Uh, And he was devastated because of that. But the men's morale, it was amazing as you read the journals. Their morale was up, and they, they weren't complainers. They had work to do, and they did it, even finding work to do when there was no real work to do. They went out and found, it, found work to do anyways. So they travel. They ended up uh, adapting one of their uh, one of the boats, that, one of the three small vessels that was alongside of the boat on the Endurance that was just the rescue boats. They were able to drag along with them, and they named this one the James Carden. James, C-A-R-D-I-N. And the men traveled, uh, traveled after they made it to Elephant Island. The men landed on Elephant Island, and then a group of men, four men along with Shackleton, so uh, Shackleton and three other men, and they ended up traveling what, what's uh, called through the, what's called the Drake Passage. And the Drake Passage is the most violent passageway of sea in the entire world to this day. Swells up to 100 feet, so you have big waves, and the waves are rocking back and forth frigid temperatures, and these men had to travel about 800 miles to travel to what would die, the little island of North Georgia, excuse me, South Georgia Island. They, it, in, in this trip, it, they had sleepless nights. They were in four-hour rotations, so for nine days straight, they were in this passage that was bringing them via current. They were actually making a lot of ground every single day. But what they had to do was chisel the ice that was on the front of the boat. The boat would build up with ice, and they would have to take five-minute intervals and go up and take a chisel and chisel the front of the boat because it was being weighed down so much by the ice. They did this day in and day out and made it through the Drake Passage all the way to South Georgia. The expedition wasn't yet done. The rescue mission wasn't yet done. Twenty-two men were on Elephant Island awaiting rescue. Shackleton and his men now may face South Georgia Island, and to get across the island was a passageway that had never been crossed ever by people. It was so dangerous, it was so treacherous, that nobody had made the trip. And until, until I believe, the 1980s, nobody repeated the trip again. And to this day, it's a, it is a life-or-death expedition. It is almost impossible pass. They somehow, Shackleton and another man, and by the time the book Endurance was written, nobody had yet made this venture across the island. They somehow make it 28-something miles through this treacherous pass. They hadn't had showers. This had been over two years at this point that they had been on this, since they had left on the expedition. And they end up showing up on the other side in a whaling station. They walk out of the woods. These four guys walk out of the woods, look like death warmed over. And the people there looked at them like they were just madmen. He said one word. They said, what's your name, sir? And he said, Shackleton. And Shackleton was a global hero at that point. He was a part of, it was a British, uh, it was a part of the British Empire. He was an Irishman working for the British. And the men there were so in awe that these men came through and crossed that expanse. And they ended up just with no words, shaking their hands in respect. Shackleton was able to go back and rescue all of these men. And there wasn't a single person that died on this expedition. It's a remarkable story. If you can read the, the story Endurance, I would encourage you to do that. Here's the deal. After those men endured all of that, 
what's a 35 degree night? What's a 25 degree night going out camping? What is it being outside or, or having your furnace go out when you've endured such pain, such hardship, and somehow come out the other side, the pain, the cold, the darkness, the sea, the ice, the danger, without complaint, when you've endured like that and you remember that, it shapes the rest of your life. I can, I can, I can imagine on a cold night they would go back and they would think about, my goodness, it's, at, least it's not the, it's, at least it's not the sea. At least we're not back on the James Carden. At least we're not sitting on the endurance. Suffering has a way of building you up, giving you calluses about life, toughening you up and preparing you for the future. And I want us to listen up this morning because we're going to see in this passage today the difficulties in life have a way of shaping us. They help us endure. The Christian life requires endurance. We have to suffer well. We have to toughen up. We have to square up our shoulders. We have to face sin. We have to face our problems. We have to face the devil and the flesh. We are called to be joyful in the pain, to look at the next next obstacle and not run around it, but run straight towards it. We are called to endure, and this life requires it. And friends, you guys, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are mighty oaks built with roots that go down deep and a trunk that can withstand the storm. God is building you into men and women like that, and he's called you to endure. This is going to be a holy pep talk this morning. Turn your attention to verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Recall the former days. The things in our past are incredibly important. You look back and you think about the life that you've lived and what God's brought you through, both the highs and the lows. And it's important for us to remember, apparently, As the apostle calls the attention to these Jewish Christians, he calls their attention back. Now he calls them back not to live there anymore, not to get trapped in the past, but to learn the lessons that they were intended to learn from the past. There are lessons in your personal history that you need to learn from. And there are also lessons in history as a whole that we need to learn from. Those who don't know history are bound to what? Repeat it to the positive and the negative. And by the way, the best futurists are historians. Historians are the best futurists. People that are out there in the theoretical world, they don't necessarily always know how the the body and the mind and the soul function. And yet those who know history know what what humanity, what mankind is going to need in the future. What mankind needed in the past to overcome obstacles is the grace of God. And what people are going to need in the future, what you're going to need in the future, is the grace of God. Historians are the best futurists. And so we have lessons to learn. In history, your personal and, and global history, there are positive lessons and negative. <coughs> it goes like this in your life. Something amazing happened. God brought you through something and you walked through it with integrity. Or you saw somebody else go through something difficult and they walked through it with integrity. And in your mind, it goes like this. I want to do that. I want to repeat that. I want to be like that. And if I ever face a situation like that again or like they did in the future... I want to walk through it with integrity like they did. So you're, you're taking lessons from your past to the positive. Then it works like this to the negative. You go through something that's difficult, something that was painful, something you did not handle well. Or you watch somebody love go through something and they did not handle it well. Maybe they were terrible and they made the excuse, well, hurt people hurt people, and they just started hurting everybody else. Here's the lesson that you learn from the negative. You positively learn from the negative. So I'm going to take those things and I'm going to positively learn from it 
draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to repeat those mistakes. I'm not going to do what they did to me. I'm not going to do what they did to the other person. So you look in history, you recall the former things. You learn from them. And uh, the, the, the apostle here says, after they were enlightened, after they were enlightened, they endured hard struggles and suffering. So after enlightened, you can think about it like this. After these Jews were enlightened to Christ and after they had confessed Christ, their life didn't get easier. It got harder. After they were enlightened, sufferings came. And this is often, not always, how it goes as Christians. We don't want to celebrate suffering. I mean, suffering is not something I particularly am fond of. I don't like it. I don't like when people have to face difficulties. But there's a way to go through it that's better than, than the alternative. But we're told after they received Christ or after they had, had been enlightened, they endured hard struggle and, and sufferings. Past sufferings, therefore, the struggle, the pain, past sufferings, therefore, are to be remembered. As a newsflash goes, Christians are going to go through difficult things, as are non-Christians. This is how the world works. There is no cheat code to life. There is no way to get through difficulty. And so Christians become the kind of people that can run right into it. They're not scared of it because they know that God is with them. They run into it. They don't run around it or avoid it or turn around and walk the other way. But we know it's coming. Suffering is in the Christian life. And there's nothing we can do about it. And no matter what the suffering is for them or for us, there's something in it. And there's something in the future that we'll learn as we walk through it that will be helpful for us. It trains us. It builds us. Okay, when you work with your hands, okay, the folks in here that work with their hands, your hands get calloused, right? If you're a runner, your feet get calloused. Suffering has a way of doing this for you. Not in a negative way, but a holy kind of callous. Where you've gone through difficult things and you're prepared, therefore, to go through difficult things in the future. It has a way of preparing you and equipping you for the future. This is what God is doing in them and what God is doing in all Christians when we go through difficulty. These Jewish Christians had to, in these past difficulties, they had to endure. They had to learn. And they had to remember. So what were these sufferings that they had to go through? Look at verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partakers with those so treated. Public reproach or a public public spectacle. These Jewish believers, they confessed Christ and they were made a mockery of. At times, it cost them the loss of their family. Or it's even said that some would have a funeral for, their, for those children as if they were dead. You hear about this in other, other religions as well. It was costly for a Jew to confess Christ, to follow Christ, to pursue Christ, to leave back everything that was in their old way of living and to walk in the newness of life in Christ. And so some of them were made fun of publicly, public ridicule, public spectacle, not allowed to sit at the cool kids table anymore. They became a joke. And we we experience a small fraction of this now. Where to be a Christian, Aaron Wren calls it, we now live in the negative world. Where uh, up until, you know, even into the early 1990s, we lived in this positive world. Where to be a Christian in, in the public sphere was something that was a positive. So if you took the whole span of, of, of America and you put a Jesus fish on your, on your business card and handed it out, that would have been a positive sign. Or if you said, I'm a Christian or I am a pastor, it would have commanded respect. 
Well, we went into what Aaron Wren calls the negative world, where you go through this span from the 90s into the 2000s up until about 2010, where this this neutral world, where you're, it's a neutral thing. If you're a Christian, okay, this doesn't really give you brownie points. It, it doesn't necessarily make uh, you know make you uh, you know alert, a loser or a nerd or anything in the public eye. But it's this neutral world where it doesn't really give you, give you any points, but it doesn't necessarily give you any uh, negative points either. And now he calls it the neutral or the negative world. When we now live in this negative world, to be a Christian as a whole in the United States is actually looked down upon. Whereas secularism is on the pedestal, it's looked at as morally superior. Whereas if you claim to be a, a Christian in the, in the world and let people know and you're not ashamed about that, we are experiencing for the first time really in this country what it means to be publicly ridiculed and mocked. Just turn on the TV and see how people talk about Christians. And so these early Christians were mocked and ridiculed publicly. Public shame. They were not following Christ because it made them more popular or gave them status. They weren't writing for the New York Times. David French, if you don't know who he is, he's a guy that wants to be at the cool kids table who claims to be a Christian. And... Uh, they, they experience this. And, you know, in, in life, often when we're made fun of or we look back on and we look at a time where we've experienced public scorn or ridicule, there are things in life we just kind of want to tuck away and act like it never happened. You know, you look behind. Um, Scott? Pub, public ridicule out there, yes. Where there's mockery, ridicule. And yet Paul is telling them, you need to remember that. Okay? Recall it. Don't forget it. And within the recalling, and the not forgetting was things like uh, um, betrayal, thing like, th- things like family turning their back on you. Paul says, don't forget that. Remember it. Now, we're going to be told here in a minute the reason, but it wasn't just public mockery or being a public spe- spectacle, but it was also public affliction. Public affliction. Being beaten. Private property being take- taken away. To become a Christian publicly is by way of baptism. When you become a Christian, you don't get to just confess your faith quietly. It requires a public act. And baptism is this public act that you step into, a public faith. For the Jew then to convert to Christianity, it was very costly. And they got this reproach. They got this public pain. But there's something in that, again, that they need to remember. Remember the time that you experienced that Pain. Don't forget it. Don't run away from it. Don't act like you can't ever get past it. But remember it. And it says that they were also partners of those treated like that. It says sometimes being partners with those so treated. In other words, every Christian either experienced this public reproach, public affliction, or were partners with, friends with, people who did. Everyone in this community experienced the pain of what it meant to become a Christian, to convert out of a false religion into true religion was costly. And it cost them publicly. And yet they had compassion and joy in the midst of it. This is remarkable. Verse 34. You would think, by the way, at some, you think about yourself and you think, well, what, what, if, if that was my experience, how would I face that? And for a lot of us, as we evaluate our life, we, we don't know how we would face something until we actually did. And the Holy Spirit has a way of empowering us to walk through the trials that God sends our way. Walk through the trials that the enemy comes to get us with. 
walk through the, walk through those trials with joy. And so you think and evaluate, how would I, I would have done this. If you were a part of this community, God would have given you the strength as well to endure this. And here's what we find. Their posture, their countenance through this public humiliation. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is, if we could be a fly on the wall and just watch this scene. If we could see a movie clip, it would be remarkable the endurance that these early Christians had. We're told they had compassion on those who are in prison or Paul who was in prison. This is most likely a reference to the many, the countless numbers of Christians that were in prison that other fellow believers knew and they had compassion on them. They would visit them. They would pray for them. They would do what they could to take care of their family. But then we're told they also joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Often what it would cost to become a Christian is that you lost the things that you owned. So if you're going to convert to Christianity, you're going to do that, huh? Well, it's going to cost everything you have. You see, in a community that is permeated with a religion, we're reading this week in uh, homeschool, Jordan's reading to the boys, the flag of Saudi Arabia. Arabia said that there is no God but Allah. Is that the phrase of it? Muhammad, there is no... Uh, yeah. So, like, they're, they're, a, they're a Muslim country. And on their very flag, it is... Uh, I mean, it's theocratic. It is, uh, you know, demonically theocratic, but theocratic. And, um, and so, in this society, where, where the Jews were living under the Roman rule, but in this society, everything they did was religious in nature. Everything in the public world was as well. And so, to convert then, cost, would cost somebody materially. And for many of them, them, it was either, okay, you can have Jesus, but literally that means it's either Jesus or your possessions. You're going to start your whole life new. You're going to have to reaccumulate things that you had gotten from your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. And you're going to have to set aside even maybe your house. Your, your property is going to be plundered and taken. And so there's going to be a cost. You need to count the cost. If you become a Christian, you, you release all of that and you come and follow Christ. And for many of them, they, they evaluated this. And I think for every single person in here, if you really counted the cost and you thought, if somebody gave me that option, they said, you can have Jesus, but it's going to cost everything you have. Every single one of us. There ought to be this joy to say, yeah, I mean, if, if that's the decision, it was like, okay, Sparks family, it's either Jesus or your house, your vehicles, your finances, the food in your freezer. It's either Jesus or that. We'll take Jesus. hundred times out of a hundred, we'll take Jesus. And this is what happened. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They counted the cost and they realized that following Christ, leaving false religion and stepping into reality is what God had called them to do and God would be faithful through it. And so they had compassion on those who were in prison and they had joy even at cost to their own selves. They said, I'll take Jesus. You can have my possessions. It's remarkable. The apostle tells them to remember it all. Remember it all. Remember the pain. Friends, okay, to lose and have your private property plundered, you can be joyful through it, but there's still, there had to have been some sort of holy sorrow within that. Imagine 
your house being gone, being taken, plundered, and going through and taking everything, burning it down, or taking possession of it, and saying you're now on their streets. Or like somebody, it's like, man, I got this Woolrich hoodie on Poshmark, man. I mean, Woolrich shirt on Poshmark. I love this shirt. Somebody come and saying it's that Woolrich shirt of Jesus. Like, all right, fine. But the things that are precious to you, you know, the things that you enjoy, the family treasures that have been handed down, taken away. And the apostle says, remember it. Remember what it cost. Remember the former days when you walked through this with compassion and joy. Because to go forward, to walk in the future, there's going to be more difficulties. And you need to be prepared by what God, God brought you through in the past. And for every one of us, it's easy to translate that and think about your life. The, the, the past sorrows, the past difficulties are training you and building you and have been training you and building you up into the person that you are today. Recall it. Now, to go back and talk about recalling it, recalling the former things does not mean being fixated on everything that was bad in your life. The apostle is not trying to build a culture of victimhood status within the people of God. He's not reminding them of their misfortune or the plundering of their property for them to go back and cry about it. Not that crying or tears are bad or even inappropriate in those settings, but he's not trying to tell them, think about everything that's been done bad to you so you can be in this posture for the rest of your life. No, he's, he's not doing that. We sell victimhood in this country by the billions, by the billions. And there are people out there in the outrage world that want to get you outraged and then want to convince you how much of a victim you are. And the truth of Christianity is, yes, certainly there's been some bad things that have happened to you, but you're not a victim. Step up and into what God has for you. And so, recall. Now, notice the apostle, again, was not trying to trap them there. And the reality is that bad things have happened to happen to them and bad things are going to happen to you. And the apostle realizes the truth of that. But the recollection of it was not simply for sympathy's sake or not even to feel sorry for them. He wants them to remember so that they will endure. He wants them to remember how they endured. That even at the loss of their property, they still had joy and compassion. He wanted them to think about that. To build them up for the future. And Pilgrim's Progress, it's, it's a, there's a neat thing. I'm going through Pilgrim's Progress right now with Andy. Andy's taking me through Pilgrim's Progress. I told him I struggle with allegory, and it's an embarrassing, embarrassing thing to admit that the second most published book in the history of the world, which is Bible number one, Pilgrim's Progress number two, I had never read it. I'd watched the movie rendition of it. Hadn't read it. I'd started it so many times, and I just struggled with allegory. I couldn't, couldn't do it. So Andy's like, you really need to do it. And uh, he's taking me through chapter by chapter. And he's got it memorized. And um, almost. So we're going through and we get into the city on, uh, or excuse me, we get into uh, hopeful and Christian and, and they're prisoners of despair. And the giant of despair, if you read the book, or read the book, you know what I'm talking about here. But there was a moment where hopeful had to give Christian a pep talk. Okay. And he had to remind him of what he had been through in the past. Of everything that they had gone through to get to this point on their journey to the celestial city. And here's what he said. Great despair had been beating them and told them to take their own life. That's what he was trying to, to tell them to do. The, the giant was saying, just get out of this, this life. Here, take your life. He was trying to convince them to do that. And Christian, at this point, was thinking about it. Hopeful said, my brother, don't you remember how valiant you have been in the past? Apollyon could not crush you, nor were you defeated by all the things that you heard. 
saw or felt in the valley of the shadow of death. Consider all the hardship. Consider the terror. Consider the bewilderment that you have already gone through and how you are full of fear. Don't you see that though I am far weaker than you, by nature I inhabit this dungeon with you? The giant has wounded me as well as you and has cut off my bread and water as well as yours. I also mourn without light, but let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how you conducted yourself in the form of the men in, in, in front of the men of Vanity Fair and were neither afraid of them nor chained nor caged nor even of bloody death. So let us, at least to avoid this shame that is unbecoming of a Christian, bear this with patience as well as we can. Hopeful, encouraging Christians saying, brother, remember what you've walked through. Remember that you weren't scared. You were not shaking in your boots in the past. You didn't care about the mockery at Vanity Fair. You weren't scared to bleed and die. Remember this, Christian. Now, there's a, a time and place for this. The Apostle Paul, when he said, I have finished the, the fight. I have, I, have finished, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished my course. We know Pauline theology, biblical theology, that Paul is not saying, I've done this in my own strength. Look how strong and powerful I am. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And look at me. We are presupposing Paul's understanding that he knows in saying this, that he's also saying that it was God that made me strong. He's not saying that he independently did this. So there is a place to say, look at where you've come. Look at the strength that you walked with. Look at this and remember, and this is what Hopeful did for Christian. Christian, remember this. So past sufferings help us and equip us to be trained in the future. And sometimes we need a holy pep talk to remember you had strength and courage, brother. Fan that into flame again. Stop shaking in your boots. Endure. <laughs> Endure. Because here's the deal. When we think about former things. And we think about how we've walked through this life. How God has brought us through it. How God has sustained us. And has a way of building holy confidence. Not pride. Not arrogance. But confidence. In fact, you are commanded to have confidence. Not in yourself. Again, we're presupposing that. But confidence nonetheless. Confidence. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Confidence. Don't throw it away. <clears throat> confidence builds when you recall former things that God brought you through. Get confidence. Not arrogance. But get confidence. Don't leave home, don't leave home without it. You've got to have it. Here's the deal. Whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty it is, and whatever difficulty you're going to face, you can face it. By the grace of God, you have deep roots, and you can face it. You can go through the storm, you can drink in the good soil of God's grace, and God's going to sustain you, and you can walk through this. And you need to know that. The things you've walked through in the past... Have confidence that God's going to continue to do that to you in the future. That he's going to give you strength. There are things that we walked through in the past. And I'll tell you this. It, it's by the grace of God. Again, confidence, not arrogance. We've gone through some difficult things. Um, not by a measure of a lot of you. Some of you. Difficult is subjective in some ways. 
we've gone through some, some situations in, in churches in the past where things were just difficult and other people had heard about it and they talked to us and, and their expectation is that, you know, you guys are going to be more wounded than you realize. Um, and it was disbelief that we were doing well. And it wasn't anything that we were faking. It wasn't any kind of phoning. It wasn't anything like that at all. But I remember sitting in an assessment thing with Sojourn Network, a network we used to be a part of. And their posture was, brother, you can't be doing okay. You can't be doing well. Uh, what you really do, you need, to, you need to think about how you're not doing well. And Jordan and I were like, I think we're doing pretty well. I actually think, I mean, we got joy. And I think we're doing pretty good. We were in other situations. We were walking through situations that required. And, you know, to this day, I, I look back and situations we've gone through where, you know, we walked out of there with our head held high. And as I look back, we need to repent of anything that we need to repent of. But it's like, no, you know what? We walked, out, we walked through there with integrity. And God was gracious. And he was helpful. And again, we're, we're, not, we're presupposing that to say that we have confidence. It's, it's, it's God-wrought confidence. It's not, I, I am the man. I am good. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody. None of that. But it is. I, I, God is with me. The Holy Spirit's in me. And whatever's thrown my way, we're going to face it. And we're going to face it with joy. And we're going to march through it. We're not going to be scared of it. We're not going to be scared of anything. If God calls the ladies in the room to not fear anything that's frightening, by golly, I'm not going to either. And this is what God's called us to. Holy confidence. This is what we need. Selfish swagger is not good, but godly confidence is very good. And so to state it plainly and clearly again, when I say you're going to get through this, I'm not saying you have the strength to do this by yourself. We're presupposing biblical truth here. But here's the deal. You can walk through it. God's with me. I belong to him. You belong to him. The God of the universe is on your side. You belong to him. His blood purchased you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. If there are any mighty oaks in this world, they're in this room. And the winds come, but, and they beat against the house, but the house stands firm because it's on a solid foundation. Friends, this is what we need to remember, what God has done in the past. We belong to Him. What do we have to fear? There's great reward with confidence. That's what it clearly says. With confidence is great reward. Read it again. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. There's great reward with holy and right confidence in the faith. And then in verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done all of the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. You never know, since the, uh, the epic arm wrestling battle of 2022 here in the room. This year we're, we're going to have that competition again, but we're going to have a professional arm wrestling table. And uh, I'm, I'm still working on it. You know, I'm getting stronger, but I'm, I'm working on arm wrestling. So I've got some arm wrestling workouts I'm doing and stuff. And, and Dalton thinks I cheated. I know I didn't, but... Um, and... Uh, these two arm wrestlers, John Brzezink is, is worldwide known as, John Brzezink is, is the greatest of all. He's the Tom Brady, the Michael Jordan, the Babe Ruth of arm wrestling. Okay, John Brzezink is now 57 years old. He's still at it, and he's still ridi- ridiculously strong. He's had shoulder problems, but even through the shoulder problems, and at 57, he's still top-notch, world-class. Now, Devin Larat, me and Josh are talking about Devin Larratt, Devin Larratt, however you say his name. De- Devin is 10 years younger, 47, and Devin 
is also one of the greatest of all time in arm wrestlers, okay? And I know, I know the Jacksons watch arm wrestling. The Jackson girls over there watch arm wrestling, but they like schoolboys. Schoolboys good too. And uh, <clears throat> so Devin, Lar- Devin Larato um, just recently faced off within the last year to, to John Brzezink, and Devin was the first person or maybe the second person to beat John over like a 20-year span. Brzezink won like 20 years in a row. Nobody could beat him in throughout the world. But what Devin Larat was known for and is known for is his incredible endurance in arm wrestling. And if you remember Graham and Isaac, remember that Graham and Isaac battle or that epic battle where Graham just had that endurance and he just had to hold on and hold on and hold on and hold on. And finally, he waited out. Okay, this is, this is Devin Larat. John, Ber- John Brzezink is at the age now where his arm and shoulders, he's got to beat people quickly and he's got to get over it and he's got to beat people quickly because his arm doesn't have the same sort of endurance it used to have. And here's what we're being told here. There's, there's something powerful in, in endurance. And in your life, you're going to have to endure. There are certain things you're just going to have to endure. You need to, do, to, to walk through it with joy, but you're going to have to just get through it. There's no way to get around it. You're just going to have to get through it. There's going to be seasons of life that you just have to buckle down and say, there's nothing else I can do, but I just got to walk through it. And I got to endure. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult, but I got to endure it. And that's going to be a part of the Christian life. And this is what how this is what and how we have to live as Christians, knowing and being prepared, just like I've walked through difficult things in the past, I'm going to have to endure in the future. Some of you need to stop being, being, being crybabies about stuff. It's easy to complain in this world, isn't it? It's easy for me to complain. Really is. I'm not saying that pain isn't real. I get that. But one of the things, my, <clears throat> when you're talking about people that complain, it's easy for me to complain. It's cold outside. It's hot outside. Or, goodness, I, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that. The lingles, if anybody complains when they're eating, they have to get double portions. Okay. No reality of life, you're going to have to endure some things. And let's endure it with joy. Enduring things with joy rather than enduring things with complaining is a million times better. And we all know it. And yet we get in the middle of it and we're like, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe I'm going to do this. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever it may be. Endure. The Bible is telling us, God is telling us, we need endurance. Hold on. If you hold on, there's reward. You will win. And the Christian life is about this. Hear me say this loud and, cr- and clear. Christians endure to the end. False converts do not. The defining line. Like, how, how do you know somebody's saved? Given enough time over a lifetime, it's going to be pretty evident who a true convert and who a false convert is. False converts don't endure. True con- converts do. Don't shrink back in fear. Step up into the life God's called you. Run into the trouble and endure. And true Christians do. They endure to the end. We're going to see here enduring and living by faith walk hand in hand. These are statements, again, like throughout the book of, uh, of Hebrews. They're not conditional. They're revelatory. Endurance reveals who belongs to the Lord and who doesn't. Those who belong to the Lord, endure. Those who don't belong in the door, to the Lord, don't endure. They walk their way and walk away. Endure. It's what God's called you to. You end up getting holy calluses. This isn't some sort of caramelized hardness where you just become a person that's more mean. But we all do need holy calluses in life to know I've been through that. I can go through anything. 
And God's faithful. You need this. And after we, when we endure, we receive what's promised. When you know there's promises out there, I'm telling you, uh, inheritances are like this. So um, I've, I've heard it said about the king and queen of England. You know, Prince Charles had to wait a really long time for, for uh, uh, Queen, what was her name? Just died. Queen Elizabeth just died after 70 years, something like that. And he, he's waiting, knowing that this is coming. Now, it's not like he was living in poverty leading up to that or anything like that. But, <clears throat> you know, there are promises out there in the future and they're out there and they're not promises you'll never get to. I think I've talked to you guys about auntie before and honey, I shrunk the kids where they put the piece of that oatmeal pie out in front of auntie and just auntie never got to that oatmeal pie, you know, just walking like this. Okay. The promises of God are for us. Eternity awaits us. And so we're, we're enduring as people, not without hope. We're enduring as people with certain hope. We know what's coming. We know what belongs to us rightly as sons and daughters of the living God, heirs with Christ. And we know what our future eternity is like. So when you think about that and you keep that front and center, that on the other side of endurance are promises that we can't even imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. And so Christians endure and false converts don't. The promises of God are not enough. No. I have to have now what I want. And they grab and they pull and they run instead of patiently enduring. But you and I, by the grace of God, we endure. And then we're told not only do the righteous or not only do God's people endure and they don't throw away their confidence because they, they need endurance. And then by the, they've done all by the will of God. They receive what's re, what, what is the reward. And then we're brought back to the Old Testament. Verse 37, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Jesus is going to come. Jesus is coming. We, we talk about this a lot. We sing about it. Jesus is going to come. We don't have any idea when, but he's going to come. We either meet him or be with him when he does. This is a part of the promises of God. But we're told that when he comes, that he will come and will not delay when he comes. And then we're told the righteous one shall live by faith. Now, this is, not, this is a statement of fact. I want you to get this. Again, this is not conditional. It's a statement. The righteous one shall live by faith. This is how righteous people live. They live by faith. This is a, it's, a, it's a defining marker of a Christian, not a conditional thing. It, this is a defining marker, meaning the righteous live by faith. False converts don't live by faith. Christians don't shrink back. False converts do. And the ones who for a while walk along with these Hebrew confessing Christians who walk along for a while and they confess Christ and they say they're living by faith and they turn back and they don't confess Christ and they do shrink back, God's soul will find no pleasure in them. But those who endure and live by faith, God's soul conversely will have pleasure in them. And friends, the pleasure of God because of the work of Christ is on us. 
And one day, we're going to experience that again in undefinable ways. You know, the Bible defines the eternal state. There are things that are concrete and physical and real that we can write down in a systematic format and say eternity will be like this. But there is so much left in those concrete statements that our imagination can't even fill in the gaps. When no mind has ever even conceived after reading about the eternal state, this global and universal Eden, and no mind can even conceive how glorious it is, there's so much that the imagination has, has limitations. You know that new Avatar movie that is out? And there was so much imaginative about the, the first Avatar movie that came out. People thought, my goodness, it opened you up to a whole new world of colors and sights. And it's like your senses are all, you're watching this movie and you're like, this is, these are things that I've never, the, the creative genius in this. And a mind conceived of that world. And yet for us, the enduring ones, the ones living by faith, that reward that's coming, it's unimaginable. There's not a single person on this earth that has a collection of ideas that have come together that have even come close to scratching the surface of our reward that's coming to us. How asinine is it to not endure when the promises of God are right there for us? Endure, man. Your life's a vapor. You're going to go through difficult stuff. Endure. Square those shoulders up. March toward it. Don't run away. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous one shall live by faith. And that's what true Christians do. Live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. False converts shrink back. And if you're a Christian, I want you to hear this. You're going to endure. Christians endure. Christians live by faith. If you're a Christian, you're going to endure. And in time, this is how it always works. In time, we end up seeing who the false converts are. And we weep and mourn over that. It's sad to see that. But in time, it's like this great sifting. Suffering and persecution has a way of doing this over a lifetime. It's like a sifting. You sift the flour. The flour gets, gets purified comes out. Or gold is refined. And the, the impurities go away. Fire comes. Suffering comes. Persecution comes. And God's men and women walk through it. And they're strengthened by it. And that, that oak goes deeper into the ground. Those roots go deeper into the ground. And they get nourished in the midst of the difficulty. And they're prepared for the next wave of difficulty that comes later on down the road. This is how the righteous live. And then we get to this holy pep talk in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is an identifying marker. We aren't those who shrink back. You're not those who shrink back. It's not who you are. We are not of those who buckle under the pressure. We are not those when the waves and the wind comes that get blown away off their foundation. You are not the one who faces difficulty and throws your hands in the air and turns your back on Jesus and his bride. That's not who you are. You're not the ones who shrink back. Oh no, that's not you. You're God's men. You're God's women. You're God's children. And when difficulty comes your way, you're the ones who endure. You're the ones who step up into the calling that God's called you to. You're the one that gets stronger under pressure, gets more purified under pressure. Your infirmities and unholiness gets knocked off and chiseled off and done away with when you're going through the difficulty. You become a better man or a better woman off the other side. You endure. 
That's who you are. You are not those who shrink back. You are of faith. You preserve your soul. That's us. That's you. Friends, this is glorious. This is godly confidence, not vain glory. Godly confidence. It's comfort. Brothers and sisters in Jesus. My friends, listen. I love you. I want you to have this confidence. People in the world are not built for power. You are. People who don't have the Spirit of God are not built for power. They're not built for authority. They can't handle it. We see that right now. All over the place. Non-Christians get power. They don't have the ability to do anything but build their bank accounts. Okay? You're built for it. You're built for pressure. Shackleton was the guy they wanted when the ice came. He was a leader. Certainly, God in his common grace has gifted people to do some amazing and miraculous things. But friends, you have the Spirit of God within you. It's 2022 or 2023. They all run together at this point. Josh did a great job setting this up. But this year, we're talking about family worship and all this kind of stuff. There are things that we buckle, buckle, and, and we don't try or we don't attempt out of fear. Are things that we're scared of? I'm gonna, what if I idolize this or idolize that? Trust God that you can handle the blessings he gives you. You're going to be able to handle the suffering God brings your way this year. And you're going to be able, with, with the Lord's help, to handle the blessing that comes your way. And some of you, out of fear, need to step up out of that fear, whatever's coming your way, and step up into it. And start the business. Do the thing. Trust the, whatever it is. Make the tough decision knowing that God has built you into a mighty oak. You're not going to buckle in your fear and pressure. God is with you. And you certainly are not going to shrink back. Some of you this year, you're going to go through faith, two things this year you're going to just have to endure. And you're going to struggle to find joy in the midst of it, but you're going to have to endure it. And I want you to remember this sermon. Remember what God called these Hebrew Christians to do. Remember how you walked through the things in the past. Face it. Don't cry about it. Go through it and see God work. When, uh, when I was in college, I was in this, uh, oh my gosh, okay, we're in this fraternity. And uh, Robert Schuller was a prosperity preacher, the uh, Crystal Cathedral. Remember the Hour of Power? Okay. He said a bunch of crazy things. Uh, I went to college with some of his family, kids, grandkids, or grandkids, and uh, great-grandkids and stuff. And uh, our fraternity adopted this uh, When I Face a Mountain thing. And uh, here's what Robert Schuller said. When I face a mountain, I will not quit. I will find a way around it or tunnel underneath and I will turn it into a gold mine with God's helping hand. I will do whatever it takes when I face a mountain to turn it into a gold mine with God's, with God's helping hand. Friends, you need holy confidence and you need to endure. And you're the kind of people that are built for it. That's who you are. Let's pray.